If you're enjoying Bradbury 100, please search for my YouTube channel, Bradbury 101, where I review Ray's books and films. And why not check out my other podcast, Science Fiction 101, where we explore science fiction from all angles. Find Science Fiction 101 wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the life and work of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of bradburymedia.co.uk. Welcome once again to Bradbury 100, and another episode in my occasional series of Chronological Bradbury. I've already covered 1938, 1939 and 1940, so this time we're up to, hmm, can you guess, 1941. And this is the year that Ray Bradbury became a professional writer, with the sale of his short story Pendulum. We'll get to that story soon, but there are five other compositions to go through before we get there. As with all of these chronological Bradbury episodes, I'm indebted to a number of useful books. First, Ray Bradbury, The Life of Fiction by John Eller and Bill Tupons. That book provides the fundamental chronology. Second, the book The Earliest Bradbury, edited by David and Daniel Ritter, which provides many of the early stories in facsimile form, so you can read them for yourself. And third, the book the Collected Stories of Ray Bradbury, a Critical Edition, Volume 1, edited by Tuponce and Ella, which contains some of these stories in an appendix. I'll put links to these books on my website, bradburymedia.co.uk. The first Ray Bradbury story published in 1941 was How Am I Today, Doctor?, which appeared in Bruce Yerkes' fanzine The Damn Thing in February. Now, this story has never been collected in any of Ray's books, and nor was it included in the collected stories of Ray Bradbury, but it is included in facsimile form in the book The Earliest Bradbury, which is a good thing, because this issue of The Damn Thing isn't on fanac.org, which is my other go-to place for old fanzines. Here's the beginning of How Am I Today, Doctor? It actually begins with an editorial note, which says, Readers, upon completion of this story, will instantly raise a shriek to high heaven that this is an out-and-out -out plagiarism by Bradbury. Therefore, we wish to assure readers that a story somewhat like this did appear in Thrilling Wonder Stories three or four years ago. However, the ending is different in the TWS yarn. Besides, I've got to fill this mag with something. Ed. And then the story begins. Once there was a man named Thornwald. Thornwald was afraid of death. He was so afraid of death that he went to his doctor every day and had a checkup. Doctor, he would say, how am I today? The doctor, an old man with a face like a disgruntled wapiti, would take out his stethoscope, fondle about a bit, look at his patient and reply, seriously, Mr Thornwald, you are in A1 condition. He would then give his patient six purple pills, three red pills, and seven saffron pills, 
and say, go home and stop worrying. So this Thornwald is a hypochondriac, and he becomes a complete recluse, believing that everyone else in the world carries disease. So he hides himself away, he drives around in a sealed armoured car, and he lives in isolation. Eventually, he has his doctor visit him not just daily, but three times a day. And even though the doctor is making good money from every one of Thornwald's visits, the doctor tires of him and gives him a massive pill, which uh, turns out to be poisoned. That opening of the story is somewhat reminiscent of a later Bradbury story, Skeleton, the one where a hypochondriac of a man realises he has a skeleton inside him, as we all do, of course. But apart from the opening of the story, there is no real connection to Skeleton. That editorial note at the start of the story says that it's obviously inspired by a story from thrilling wonder stories. In the book The Earliest Bradbury, it's stated that no one has ever been able to locate such a story in thrilling wonder. But they say that historian Harry Warner figured that the story in question might actually have been from the September 1936 issue of Fantasy magazine, a story called Graph by Stanley Jean Weinbaum. And they include Weinbaum's story in an appendix at the end of the earliest Bradbury, so you can compare the two. Our second Bradbury story from 1941 is The Trouble with Humans is People. And this is another one which appeared in Bruce Yerkes' fanzine The Damn Thing, this time in March 1941. This one's never been collected in, in any of Ray's books. This is a, a familiar refrain, isn't it? And nor was it included in the collected stories of Ray Bradbury, but it is included in facsimile form in the book The Earliest Bradbury. So this is how this story begins. The dinosaur, being curious, looked in my window, staring at me. Evidently he was scared by what he saw, for he galloped off, screaming, and didn't come back for ten minutes. When he finally rallied courage, he crept back, all ten ton of him, and looked in again. I had been sitting waiting for him, and when he stuck his head through the window, I conked him with a gin bottle and swore at him until he grabbed me by the trousers and yanked me outside. Let me down, I cried, you big hunk of prehistoric nightmare. OK, commanded a squeaky baritone. Put him down, Joseph. The dinosaur dropped me in a heap of curses. He blinked at me and nuzzled my hair with a watermelon-shaped cranium. Now, just when you think this might be Ray's first attempt to write about dinosaurs, a topic he would return to again and again throughout his career, this turns out to be another one of his attempts at humour. And like some of the early stories I've previously talked about on the podcast, it turns into humorous dialogue more than anything else, a bit like those radio comedy sketches that Ray was very fond of at the time. The explanation for the odd situation that the narrator finds himself in is that he has actually been transported back in time to one million years BC, as in the popular Hal Roach film released the previous year, which is actually referenced in the story. But it's not a straightforward form of time travel, as it turns out that the editor of the fanzine went back in time with some issues of Astounding Science Fiction magazine, and somehow a world based on that magazine has come about. 
And this is how the story describes this strange world. To the left ran one of Heinlein's roadways, with a flourishing road city at the side. A couple of restaurants whizzed by. God, I said. Just then, a rocket ship zoomed down with the words Skylark printed on it in Braille. A couple of native girls, whose main subject of conversation seemed to be oogly-woogly burble, ran over the hill in oxygen suits a la Wesso. Then a gentleman resembling Heinlein trotted by, carrying a suitcase of assorted atoms under his arm. Hmm, plenty of references there for astounding stories, readers. I'm not sure that I got all of them, but certainly uh, Heinlein's Roadways, that's referencing his short story The Roads Must Roll. Uh, Skylark is a reference to E.E. E. Doc Smith. And I think, but I haven't looked this up, that Wesso is probably one of the illustrators. Anyway, this story really degenerates into a kind of stream of consciousness. Dare I suggest that Ray might have been making it up as he went along? It even ends with the narrator dying. Our third Bradbury story of 1941 is Wilbur and his germ and this appeared in Rob Wagner's script in May 1941. You may recall that Ray had previously had another piece published in this magazine, and that was It's Not the Heat, It's the Hu... And in a 1961 interview, Ray said that he followed up on that first appearance by giving the editor a handful of other pieces, and those appeared over the next year or two. And he also said that he didn't get paid for them, but was instead paid with free copies of the magazine, a subscription to the magazine. And that apparently is how Rob Wagner's script worked. People were very keen to contribute to and promote the magazine, which was seen as a kind of a West Coast answer to The New Yorker. Now, I'm sorry to say that despite a vast amount of searching, I've never succeeded in finding a copy of Wilbur and his germ. It's never appeared in any of Ray's books. It's not in the collected stories of Ray Bradbury. It's not in the earliest Bradbury. There are some issues of Rob Wagner's script online, but this issue isn't one of them, unfortunately. And while some Bradbury contributions to script were included in a book of the best bits from script, Wilbur and his germ isn't one of them. So if you, dear listener, happen to have a copy do please get in touch. I'd love to see Wilbur and his germ. All I do know about Wilbur and his germ is what John Eller says about it in Ray Bradbury, The Life of Fiction. He notes that this story is a fictional prose poem, which would seven years later be the basis of Ray's short story, Fever Dream. So the story itself may not be that important, but the fact that it's a prose poem and the fact that it's a precursor of a fairly well-known Bradbury story, both of those things make it something that should be interesting. It's just a shame that I can't find it. On to our fourth story of 1941, and this one is called Tale of the Mangled Omrich, which appeared in the Damon Knight fanzine Snide in June 1941. Not to be confused with Ray's story from a year earlier, Tale of the Turtle Twitch. 
No, 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 no. Mangled Omvriches are very, very different to Tortle Twitches, as you will see. The Mangled Omvrich has never been collected in any of Ray's books, but it was included in the collected stories of Ray Bradbury, a critical edition, in the appendix, and it's also included in the earliest Bradbury. And here's the opening. Mr Bengal was perambulating down Broadway with his 17 little children. Mrs Bengal had just ploughed her way through a buttress of females into a dime store. Mr Bengal stopped, his knuckles on a lamppost. He made fribbling noises with his tongue. Why in hell, he wondered, didn't Hortense, her name was Hortense Bengal, come out? His 17 children grew impatient and started chewing up traffic cops. Mr Bengal sent one little girl into the store to hunt up Mrs Bengal. The little child toddled into the mass of females that crammed the store, crying, Hey Ma, get the hell out of there! Pop's dogs are killing him! No answer came back, save for the rumple and rustle of swishing skirts and the ominous thud of bodies falling. Neither Mrs Bengal nor any of her 17 children ever come back out from that store. Mr Bengal speculates that maybe this dime store is some fourth dimensional portal and he decides to go in himself. Hours pass and Mr Bengal doesn't come back out. Eventually it reaches 10 o'clock and the store closes for the night. End of story. The story never explains what a mangled Domvrich is. Presumably it's the four-dimensional shop. And if you recall the tale of the turtle twitch, you may also recall that we never found out what one of those is either, but I just assume that a turtle twitch is very, very different from a mangled Domvrich. Next, we come to story number five from 1941, which is to make a long story much, much shorter. And this is another one that appeared in Rob Wagner's script, this time in July of 1941. Once again, it's never been collected in any of Ray's books, and it wasn't included in the collected stories of Ray Bradbury, and it's not in the earliest Bradbury. But it was once anthologised in a book called The Best of Rob Wagner's Script. Uh, which was edited by Anthony Slide and published by Scarecrow Press in 1985. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. This is how, to make a long story much, much shorter, begins. The ocean was angry. It was lifting up huge waves like wet fists and smacking them down and making sloppy noises and being insufferably nasty about the whole thing. The lightning came down on cue and the thunder belched, and the ship on which our hero and heroine were travelling was being pummeled this way and that, until they were so sick they didn't know the way to the bathroom. After about 24 hours of this, the ship yielded up the ghost. It gave off a tremendous squealing and grating, and rivets flew apart, and the ship began to sink. Now this one is quite a well-polished little humorous tale, the hero determines that the lifeboat can't carry the weight of all the people on board, and that for anyone to survive, somebody is going to have to volunteer to jump overboard and attempt to swim, even though the nearest land is about 2,000 miles away. 
Unsurprisingly, nobody steps forward when he first asks for volunteers, so he begs and pleads, who's going to volunteer for this? And at this point, a timid little man at the back says, why don't you volunteer? And the hero and heroine end up being effectively voted off the boat. But even that's still not enough. An argument breaks out among the remaining people in the boat over who's going to go next. And the argument gets so violent that the boat overturns and sinks and they all drown. There's a possibility that Rob Wagner's script was considered to be much more prestigious than the fanzines that Ray was publishing in. Even though he wasn't getting paid for his appearances in script, it was a good place to be seen. And it's possible, therefore, that he polished the script stories a lot more than he did the pieces that he wrote for fanzines. Now, finally, we come to the last story that Ray Bradbury published in 1941, and it's the first one that he sold. From this point on, we can consider Ray Bradbury to be a professional writer. The story is Pendulum, and it was co-written with Ray's friend Henry Hassey, and the story was published in Super Science Stories in November of 1941. Now, even though this story is of historic value because it's Bradbury's first professional sale, it's never been included in any of Ray's books, but it was included in the Collected Stories of Ray Bradbury, a critical edition, volume one. And in fact, it's the first story in the book, precisely because it's Ray's first professional story. It has also been anthologised. It was in a book called Horrors Unknown, edited by Sam Moskowitz, published uh, by Walker and Company in 1971. I'll give you a link to that book in the show notes. If you cast your mind back to the chronological Bradbury episode I did covering the year 1939, you may recall that in that year, Ray published a short story called The Pendulum. That was published without a byline. It was in his own fanzine, Futuria Fantasia, and it would therefore be quite reasonable for the reader to assume that it was written by Bradbury, even though he didn't put his name to it specifically. Well, here in 1941, two years on, he's revised that story with Henry Hassey and produced this new version. The old version was The Pendulum. The new version is just Pendulum. Who was Henry Hassey? Well, he was a friend of Ray's. He was about seven years older than Ray was, and he'd been appearing in print since 1933. Before Pendulum, he had ten short story credits to his name, some of them shared with other writers. But he was a little bit further on with his career than Ray was. And like Ray, he was a member of the Los Angeles Science Fiction Society, and he had contributed some material to Ray's fanzine Futuria Fantasia. According to Sam Weller's biography of Ray, the Bradbury Chronicles, Ray admired Hassey's plotting, and Bradbury and Hassey decided to work together. Uh, Ray would generally write the first draft of a story, then Hassey would edit it in order to improve it, and when the pair had reworked The Pendulum into just Pendulum, Ray sent it to the agent Julie Schwartz, uh, now, Schwartz had rejected Ray at least once prior to this, and Ray's original version of Pendulum was rejected by some professional magazine editors, 
because it had previously been published in a fanzine. But with this new version of the story, revised to evidently a professional standard, Julie Schwartz was sufficiently impressed with Pendulum that he took Ray on as a client and sold the story to Super Science magazine. The story earned $27.50, from which their agent took 10%, and then Ray and Henry Hassey split whatever was left. Now, according to my calculations, Ray would have pocketed $12.37 for this, his first professional sale. And if you plug that amount into an inflation calculator, you'll find that that translates to about $259 in today's money. Bradbury and Hassey did work together on two more stories, and we'll get to those when we cover a later year. But after those two further stories, Ray ended the partnership. He felt that writing with a collaborator was bad for him as a long-term strategy, because it would limit his development. He said that Hassey wasn't pleased about this, and in fact he also said that Hassey never forgave him for splitting up a successful partnership. So what did Bradbury and Hassey do to bring Pendulum up to this professional standard? The first version of the story, The Pendulum, published in Ray's own fanzine, was about Layville, an inventor of a time machine, who somewhat inadvertently kills all the world's leading scientists who have assembled to view his time machine. And as a punishment for this, Layville is imprisoned within the pendulum of the machine, doomed to spend eternity just swinging backwards and forwards. That version of the story ends with aliens descending after thousands of years have passed, and they examine the time machine, and inside they find the grinning skeletal remains of Layville. Well, this basic scenario is retained for the new version, just titled Pendulum, but it now has a framing story. This is how the professional version Pendulum begins. I think, shrilled Urjas, that this is our most intriguing discovery on any of the worlds we have yet visited. It's almost frightening. His wide, green-shimmering wings fluttered. His beady bird eyes flashed excitement. His several companions bobbed their heads in agreement, the greenish gold down on their slender necks ruffling softly. They were perched on what had once been a moving sidewalk, but was now only a twisted ribbon of wreckage overlooking the vast expanse of a ruined city. So this version of the story begins with those aliens, and they found a book in the pendulum, and they have translated the book into their language. Then the story switches to the content of the book, and that is Layville's account of what happened to him. And this is essentially the same sequence of events as in the original version of the pendulum, except that this revision includes an antagonist by name Lesky, and he is the instigator of the campaign to get Laville imprisoned within the Pendulum. So in the first version of Pendulum, the society decides that Laville should be punished. But in the revised version, there is a named individual who campaigns for it. So that obviously gives it a more dramatic edge. So in this revised version of the story, it's much clearer that Laville, being in his time mechanism, is somehow suspended in time. He's not growing older like all the other people on the planet, 
The people continue to feed him, and he speculates that it's become a ritual for them, and they've probably forgotten why he's there. Generations have passed, and evidently they know that they must continue to feed him for fear that interfering with the time machine might cause harm to them in some way. But eventually, after having lived so many generations longer than anybody, Laville sees that robots have somehow taken over, and robots are now caring for him. And he observes a war where the Earth people attempt to wipe out the robots. Laville becomes angered when even the robots seem unconcerned about him, and he vows to outlast even the last of them. And finally, he witnesses the arrival of the aliens, who obliterate the robots. Laville is elated that he has outlasted everyone and everything on Earth. But he's worried that the aliens will stop his pendulum, and they do. So Pendulum takes Bradbury's original concept and places it now at the centre of a bigger story. The narcissism of Laville takes on truly monstrous proportions as he sees all of humanity wither and die, all of humanity's successes defeated and destroyed. And he does, in this version, somewhat resemble H.G. Wells's Time Traveller, who is able to witness the, the long and deep future history of the Earth. But it is still very much a 1940s pulp science fiction story, and it's not particularly rich in scientific content. But this is undoubtedly the most intricate and extended piece of narrative to bear Ray Bradbury's byline up until this point. So although it doesn't really feel much like a Bradbury story in terms of what we now know to be the Bradbury style, by collaborating with Henry Hassey, he'd be able to produce something that was not out of place in a pulp science fiction magazine of the day. And so we come to the end of 1941, and Ray Bradbury has his half of $27.50 in his pocket, and he will never look back because he is now, at last, a professional writer. I hope you've enjoyed this chronological Bradbury, looking at the year of Bradbury's professional breakthrough. In the next of these occasional episodes, we'll set our sights on the year 1942, which actually is a relatively quiet year with just two publications for Ray. But they will be publications that build on the success of Pendulum. Thanks for listening, and I hope you might find the time to post a review of the podcast wherever you get your pods. And please join me next time for more Bradbury 100. If you enjoy Bradbury 100, please give me a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. A five-star review will help others to find the podcast. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Please subscribe to or follow the podcast using your podcast app. You can find us on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and all good podcast places. And don't forget to look for my Bradbury 101 series on YouTube and my other audio podcast, Science Fiction 101. For information on all of these and an endless supply of information about Ray Bradbury and his works, head to my website, bradburymedia.com.
www.ghostbusinessclub.co.uk.